0: Our text this morning comes from Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 17. If you'd like to be turning there, if, you, uh, if you're using one of our Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 929. And if you're just joining us, you're joining us right near the end of the series on the book of Acts. And for a number of months now, we've been uh, looking at the book of Acts and each, each week asking this question, what does this tell us about the mission of God? As we've seen week in and week out, God is in fact on a mission. He's on a mission to us as He comes to us and brings us the grace and forgiveness and healing that come only in Jesus. And consequently, He's also on a mission through us as He not only comes to us, but actually uses us to be a part of His mission uh, to the world, a mission to us and through us. We're going to be picking up this morning... Uh, with Paul and last week we're in chapter 19 and he was in the city of Ephesus Uh, time has passed between then and where we're picking up now and he's actually uh, continued his travel uh, travels and is now back near the city of Ephesus he doesn't come all the way to the city but is in a nearby city called Miletus and he invites the Ephesian elders the leaders of the church in Ephesus to come to him and he gives them essentially a farewell speech. Because he knows that he's not going to be back in this region of uh, the Roman Empire, this region of Asia. He'll, he'll never be there again. And he knows that he's never going to see these people in person again. And so he calls the elders to come to him in order to instruct him. So that's the text that we're going to have before us this morning. Let's pray together and then, and then we'll read. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And we trust that You would meet with us because You said that wherever two or three are gathered in Your name, that You are here also. And we ask, Father, this morning that by the power of Your Spirit that You would open up Your Word to us and open up Your Word to our hearts, that You might teach us, that You might draw us close to You, and that You might make us more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus. And we ask this in faith, in the name of Jesus. Amen. She liked it when Camper was up here, but then... Acts chapter 20, picking up at verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit." not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you, that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word that he had spoken. That they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, I'm struck by this passage because there is there's so much here. I mean, in many ways, this uh, this speech that Paul gives is really unique in the whole book of Acts because it is the only extended uh, it's the only extended speech in Acts on anyone's lips that's addressed primarily to Christians, because all the other major speeches of Acts are uh, speeches evangelistic speeches to those who do not know Jesus and a call to them to believe and follow. Or in the chapters following this, uh, extended dialogues of of Paul's as he's defending himself before the authorities. But this is the only speech in Acts that is directed uh, to Christians and is directed specifically to the leaders of this church in Ephesus as Paul is saying goodbye to them and he's reminding them of the things that he wants them to hold dear. And it strikes me that there's, there's so much here. There's, there's many different sermons that could have been preached on this. Uh, if you look at verse 19, uh, Paul speaks of serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Uh, humility, tears, and trials. That, that was the sermon I thought I was going to preach this morning. We'll, we'll save that for another day. I think there's something else for us here. But so much here of Paul's heart for his people and the way he cares for them. But here's what we're going to look at specifically this morning, as we think again in the bigger context of God's mission to us and through us, I think what we see here is that the church—the church—is the people of God's mission. Okay, we're speaking of this mission of God, and you know we've spoken about this week in and week out. And and I bet if you're like me, you know, as you've heard that for those of you that have been here, and you hear about God's mission to us and through us. My guess would be you primarily thought of that first in terms of God's mission to me as an individual. And his mission through me as an individual to the world around us. But what's interesting is that we see here that it's God's people as a whole that stands at the heart of his mission. That we together as God's people, the church, is the people of God's mission. We're going to see that um, this morning. And even to begin to speak about the church uh, might be a real stumbling block actually for some of you. Uh, For for myself, I I grew up as a kid in the church. It's where I first heard the gospel. It's where I first came to faith. And through the faithful uh, care of people in my church was nurtured in the faith growing up. I had a great church experience growing up. And in some ways, at least for my generation, that makes me a little bit unique. Uh, For many of us, that was not our experience. Maybe you've been deeply wounded by the church in the past. Or maybe it's simply this, that uh, if you're someone who's following Jesus, maybe the places that you have seen Jesus most honored, most loved, and faith most vitally lived out have not been the church. Um, You know, maybe, uh, for instance, like my wife Elizabeth, she grew up in a church that did not give much attention to the preaching of the gospel, and she came to faith through uh, the ministry of young life, a parachurch ministry to high school students, one that we have here in Williamsburg, and we have... uh, uh, Young Life staff members that are part of our church, uh, a great ministry that brings the gospel to high school and middle school students, but one that works uh, alongside the church. That was her experience, and, and she would tell you that growing up, the people that, that, that I, in whom I most saw the love of Jesus and saw faith vitally lived out were, were people in this organization, but not in my local church. Uh, for myself in, in college, and maybe for many of you as well, being a part of a parachurch ministry there, I was involved with Intervarsity Christian Fellowship, a ministry in which I in which I grew was really encouraged, as was my wife, as was Camper, and for many of you as well. And uh, God uses ministries like that in amazing ways, and we should be really, really thankful. We should be unabashedly thankful. But what's interesting about this passage is that it tells us that the the call to bring the gospel to the world and the people who stand at the heart of this are the church and it is our responsibility as a church to live in that and live out that mission okay so first let's take a look at the the centrality of the church paul uses a few different images for uh, the cohesiveness of the church in this passage if you look at verses 28 and 29 you see him referring to the church as a flock Okay, the shepherding imagery. He talks about. Uh, he's speaking to these these elders as shepherds of the flock. He says God. He compares God's people to a a flock of sheep. That might not sound very um, flattering for us, but it it is a biblical image that runs straight through Scripture. If you were to go back, especially in the prophets, uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, time and again, you'll see God's people referred to uh, very positively. By the way, as as God's flock and God's uh, the leaders of God's church referred to as shepherds and of course Jesus himself we're going to see is the chief shepherd. This is an image that first Peter uses. Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 5 he, he speaks again to the elders of the church and says, you know, shepherd the church faithfully as you follow the chief shepherd, Jesus. And this image of a flock and shepherds that's exactly the same image that Jesus used for the church. If you recall John chapter 10 Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. And here's what he says in John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus himself looks at his people and says, these are my sheep, this is my flock. And what's the great, uh, not that any of us really have much shepherding uh, you know, history, I imagine, but we can get, you know, what's the great danger for the flock? That it's going to be scattered that it would be torn apart, that it would be exposed to dangers. And so what does Jesus say even in this passage in John? And what are these elders exhorted to? To care for the flock, to keep them together, to nurture and to hold them tight. I know the flock is not not the only way that that Paul here speaks about the value of the church. And and to get in this next one, let me just ask you a question. For whom did Jesus die? For whom did Jesus die? Now... There are a lot of biblical ways, biblically correct ways to answer that. Jesus died for sinners. Or how about this? Listen to Galatians 2:20, again Paul speaking. He says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me." What's Paul saying? Jesus died for me. And that is a right and a beautiful thing for us as believers to hold on to. But look what's emphasized in our passage. Look at verse 28. For whom did Jesus die? Verse 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Who did Jesus die for? He died for the church. He died for the corporate body of believers. Now again, we've got Paul saying, Christ gave himself for me, and it's true. You've heard me say this before, but salvation is an intensely personal experience. It's right that when we, say, when we talk to somebody about following Jesus, we speak of a personal relationship with Jesus. It's intensely personal. But it is not private or privatized or individualized. It is personal but not private. We are called into the people of God. And for those of us uh, who are Americans, not everybody here are in our own culture, how do we tend to see ourselves primarily as individuals first and as members of a family or a church or a community or a nation second? When you think of yourself as a Christian, what do you tend to think of first? You think of yourself as an individual and then maybe your participation in the body of Christ secondarily. Well, I think that might be we might have reversed the uh, the telescope from the way Scripture looks at this, because Scripture speaks first of God redeeming for Himself a whole people, and that people is made up of individuals like you and me. So both are true. There is there is a personal dimension of it and a corporate dimension of it. But for Scripture, the corporate comes first, and it has implications then for us as individuals. That that might seem overly subtle, but it has serious implications for the way we think about our own faith and our connection to other Christians. To realize in the view of the Bible that we are part of the people of God. That this is a corporate reality for us. With individual implications, very dear and precious ones, but it is a corporate uh, reality for us. Now, the the Bible uses other than flock and uses other images for us as the church. 1 Corinthians 10 speaks of uh, the church as a body that we are parts of. It it uses the analogy of a a physical human body with Christ as the head and we're his body. Or if you think of Ephesians 5, Paul speaks about marriage and the relationships between husbands and wives. And right in the middle of that, he suddenly switches and says, but of course, I'm talking about our relationship to Jesus as the church. He says, Jesus is our great bridegroom and we are the bride. The church is His bride. This relationship of incredible intimacy. And in Revelation 19 and 20, when Jesus returns, the image that's used is the bridegroom coming back for the wedding supper with His bride, us, His people. And the church matters to Him. Deuteronomy 7, 6 uses this image for God's people. It refers to us as God's treasured possession. And that's what he's getting at, Paul's getting at in this speech here, that we are, in fact, God's treasured possession. Let me ask you this. How do you know when something is valuable to you? Or how is that shown? Uh, It might be by the uh, amount of money that you're willing to pay to purchase something. as a gauge of how valuable something is. Or the extent to which you're willing to sacrifice for something that is valuable to you. A uh, number of years ago, a couple months before our first child, Caroline, was born, uh, we, we had been the gracious or the grateful recipients of uh, some wedding show- or wedding showers, some um, baby showers, and we'd gotten much of the gear that goes with having a first child, which was way more than I ever could have imagined was required just to keep a human being alive. Uh, but... There were there were a few things we're missing. So a couple months before Caroline was due, we went to Babies R Us, and and it was it was my first experience in Babies R Us, and I'm I'm still scarred. But, uh, <laughs> we were looking for a a stroller among other things, and when you walk in and find two aisles of strollers, and you know that if you don't pick the right one, your child is going to be scarred forever. Um, so there we are, we're getting all the, the stuff we still need for our baby, we come up to the checkout line, uh, and there's this o- older lady who's, who's checking us out, and I don't know if we caught her on the wrong day, or she was a perpetually grumpy person, but as she's checking us out, the thing she says is, you know, nobody ever tells you that a baby's going to cost you $6,000 in its first year. And I'm thinking, no, they don't tell you that, do they? <laughs> so there I am thinking about $6,000, uh, and, you know, disturbed by that, and... Well, a couple of months later, fast forward—you know—there we are in the, in the delivery room, and, and Caroline is born. And there, I'm, I'm holding my daughter in my arms. And at which point, you would think six thousand dollars—who cares? Who cares? Not even worth mentioning. Because the things that we really value are dear to us, and we're willing to pay the price. So here's the question for us: How dear are we to Jesus, and what was the price? That he was willing to pay for us. Look again in verse 28. Holy Spirit's made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How much of a treasure did Jesus think that we are? Well, it was one that was worth his own death to him, it was one that was worth a body crucified on the cross and blood spilled for us. Now, as we look ahead in a couple of weeks to Easter, it's very easy to think about the gruesomeness of Jesus' death. And it certainly was. It was the most painful way the Romans were able to devise to crucify a criminal. And they were good at executions. Uh, but you, know, you could think through world history and, and, and certainly imagine that there were, there were other people uh, in the world who have suffered for great causes. And there are people likely who died deaths that were more physically painful than that how much did Jesus love us and what did it cost Him? Well, it it cost Him the actual real physical pain of that. But the crucifixion represents much more. You remember the words of Jesus, His last words that He speaks on the cross as He quotes Psalm 22. He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? What mattered to Him more than the physical pain on the cross? That Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, Suffering at that moment as he takes on the weight of the sin of all his people through all time and history, every ounce of it, what does he experience? Separation from his father, this incredible rift that tore through his soul. He said, this, this is worth it to me. I will go through this. I will literally walk through hell so that my people do not have to. That is how much of a treasure Jesus found us to be. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son for us. As you and I well know, we got the better end of that bargain. Because we were not a treasure that was inherently worthy ourselves. What does Romans 5 tell us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we have this remarkable picture here of a God who's chosen to treasure us, not because we are valuable intrinsically, but we become valuable because he puts his favor on us. We become a treasure as he chooses to treasure us and to love us. What he tells us here is that he loves the church. He died for us as a corporate body. He treasures the church. And so that means for us, if we're going to love and follow Jesus, we must learn to love what he loves as well. And Jesus loves the church. And he calls us to love the church as well. Now, not only has he treasured us, the treasure that God, God's goodness to us the gospel, the message of His grace and favor for us, now becomes our treasure as the church. Just as He's treasured us, we now treasure Him. Look at the way uh, you know, Paul repeatedly refers to the gospel in this passage. Verse 24, he talks about the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. He says, that's what I brought you. The good news of the grace of God. Verse 25, he refers to God's kingdom, this reign, this recognized reign of Jesus, our good King. Verse 32, when he's saying goodbye to the elders, he says, I commend you now to God and to the word of His grace. What does he keep reminding them of? God has moved toward you when you were running away. He has put His favor and His grace on you. And this is good news for you. It is good news for us. We're people called by God's grace, united to each other by His freely given favor in Jesus. And so the gospel, the good news of this reconciliation, is to be the treasure of the church. It is to be the thing that we as a church value most. It is to be the thing that is most beautiful to us. It's to be the thing that one day we hope, if you were to ask somebody in our city, What do you know about Grace Covenant, Presbyterian Church? They would say they value the gospel, the goodness of Jesus. And they live it out and they show the love of Jesus to everybody they come in contact with. This whole city is indelibly changed because the gospel has shone brightly for Grace Covenant. And the people of that church come and bring the goodness of Jesus to this city through acts of service, and mercy and love and justice, and through faithful and bold proclamation of Jesus, our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that we'd be a church that treasures the gospel, and that the world around us would see that that is in fact our treasure. Now it's interesting. He goes on, as we said in this in this passage, he specifically is addressing leaders of the church. He's addressing the elders, and it. As I was studying this and thinking about it, it would be very easy just to sort of pass over that quickly because in a, in a church our size, there's only a handful of elders. But, of course, this is not simply relevant to them because we all have a share in this. And it's important for us all to understand what does is, what is God really call the leaders of his church to? just a couple things to point out several titles are used for these leaders of the church in this chapter they're referred to as elders in uh, verse 28 they're also referred 28 29 they're also referred to um, as overseers and he speaks to them about caring for nurturing the church of god and, and, and the verb in the greek there's literally the verb that means to shepherd the same role are called shepherds shepherds overseers elders all refer to the same role of the people that God's called into uh, leadership in the church. Another thing that stands out to me verse 28 there is it, it's clear, how did these people become elders? Well, what does he say? You know, that you were appointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, in, for Paul, as he went around planting churches, he appointed elders and left them then to appoint their own elders as the years went by. But in, in spite of that human agency, what does he say? It's the Holy Spirit who calls people to serve and to lead in this way. Now, what does he want these leaders to know? What does he want them to value? Look again at verse 28. The very first thing that he says to them in this context, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. The very first thing he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves. What's he saying? Okay, this gospel that is to be the treasure of the church must be your treasure. Jesus must be the center of your life. He must be the orienting thing around which everything else in your life fits and comes into context. All of your life now relates to the service of Jesus. And that gets played out for you now at home and in your places of business and with your friends and with your neighborhood and certainly here at, this, at the church. He says to the elders, Jesus must be what is most precious, what is most central to you. He must be your deepest love. That's the first thing he says to the elders. Uh, a pastor in a church I used to go to before we moved to Williamsburg um, used to say it this way He said, We have to be smoking what we're selling. Now, there's a lot wrong with that statement, <laughs> uh, but there's a lot right about it as well. What does he say? He says to the leaders of the church, if you're going to point people to Jesus, then you'd better be resting in Jesus yourself. If you're going to stand up and tell people the truth, which is that they must be reconciled to Jesus and that all of life is about the worship and glory of Him, then that has to be a very present reality in your life. If you're going to counsel people in your congregation and remind them in the very difficult situations of their own lives that Jesus is Lord, that He brings help, and that He is good, and you're going to have to remember that first for yourselves. And, of course, the exhortation to us, to me, to Camper, to the rest of our session, to our deacons, ministry leaders in our church, we must love Jesus. And he must be our starting point. And that feels personally challenging. But what's his next exhortation? He says, pay close attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This very same gospel that you are to love and to cherish is the exact one, the exact gospel, the exact word of hope that you are to be speaking constantly into the lives of the members of your church. Because this very thing that is life for you is the only thing that can be life for the rest of the church. This is to be what is on your lips, and this is to be what is uh, behind your actions and in your love for your church, Jesus. That is what your congregation needs. I've this conversation more than once with folks in my office, whether it has to do with walking through difficult situations in marriage or many of the other things that come up in life. Let's take marriage, for example. I can sit and say to a couple, you know, we can talk about uh, some things that need to happen here as far as learning how to communicate better. There's a lot of skill stuff that we can talk about, and it's worth talking about. But at the end of the day, what you need most in your marriage is the presence of Jesus. You need to be resting on Him. You need to be drinking deeply of His forgiveness and love for you so that you might share that with your spouse. We can talk about skills all day long, some of which are good. But at the end of the day, what do I as a minister have to offer to you? And What do the elders have to offer to you? What do we have to offer to each other? The goodness of Jesus. That is where we stand. He goes on and calls them to care for the church. Again, literally, to shepherd the church. To care for them, to lead them, to defend them, to guide them, to love them—that's what our elders are called to. Let me just offer this as a way of application: uh, Pray for the leadership of your church. We desperately need you to pray. Pray that we would be people who love Jesus deeply and above all, and that we might faithfully minister the gospel to you, because we are all people in need of Jesus. But then he goes on, not simply speaking of the treasure of the church, leaders of the church, but he goes on to talk about the threat of the church. Look at verses 29 and 30. He says that after I leave, he says, fierce wolves are going to come up even among you, even in, in your own church. There are, going to be, uh, there are going to be leaders and teachers that would rise up and teach things that are false, and they're going to cause incredible destruction, and you must be on your guard. Because what's he saying? You, you know the, the little children's rhyme, the sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Well, Paul says, sticks and stones can break your bones, but bad doctrine will, will kill you and will kill your church. False teaching that would point us away from Jesus will kill your church. And there are a lot of ways this could manifest itself in a church. And let me just say, what I, as I look at us, dangers that, that we need to constantly be on the guard against. One is this, that we would be people that whatever we profess with our mouth, that at the end of the day we would would still be people who live in such a way that we proclaim, Jesus loves me because I work hard. I can trust that God is acting favorably towards me this week because I've done the right stuff and I've checked it off my list. And we might say with our lips, that is not what we believe. But so often your life and my life proclaim that's exactly what we believe. God's favor, a reward for my goodness. Rather than my goodness, a response to God's unmerited favor. And that would be a danger for us. Another danger for us as I think about our congregation. Is that we would be very careful because um, that we would never think that we can ask this question. How is the gospel good news for me? Without at the very same time asking this question. How is the gospel good news for my neighbor? Because those questions really can't be separated. Not if what Acts is teaching us about the mission of God to us and through us is really true. Those questions always go together. How is the gospel good news for me must always be closely wed to. How is the gospel good news for them? For this city? For my family, for my co-workers, for my neighbors, how is the gospel not only good news for me, but how is it good news for them as well? Just a couple quick things in conclusion by way of further application. One is this. uh, If Jesus really loves the church and if it's really at the center of his work is the people of God, then I think it makes sense that we have to be a part of the church. That if you're somebody following Jesus, you're called to be a part of a church. Uh, some of you have experienced this in the past or possibly are experiencing in the future. You know what bad, prolonged dating looks like, right? Okay? Um, you, you're, you're dating somebody and you're, and you're in this constant mode of evaluation. Is this person the one for me? Are they the right fit for me? Do we have fun enough on our dates? Is this the kind of fun that could last for 70 years? Is this, you know, always in this mode of evaluation... And our relationship to the church can look like bad dating. And let me just say this. One application, I think, of this text is that you should join your church. Whether that's us or another church that faithfully preaches the gospel. Find a church that's a good fit for you. Of course, I hope it's this one. (laughs) Most of us are here because we found that it is this one. But join your church. Wedge yourself to it. Because the truth is, it is far too easy in our individualistic society to be free agents. What happens the first time things get hard? Or the first time you get that snub out in the commons that might or might not have been intentional and you just don't know? Or What happens when things start to fall apart in your life and there's serious stuff that you don't want anybody to look at? How easy it is for us to run instead of to turn towards God's people this people who stand at the heart of God's mission, that we might together learn what it means to forgive and to love and to grow. Because often we find in life that it's only in making a commitment that we're really free to love and grow. Join the church. Second thing is, for those of us that have, invest yourself in the relationships of this church. Not exclusively, But invest yourself in the relationships of this church. Because we might have formally joined, but it might mean very little to us as far as real, actual connection to the body of believers here at this church. We are called into this thing together. And we need to know each other and care for each other. And then secondly, as a church, we must be entering into this mission of God together. As a church, even. That we, together as a church would be a light for the gospel here in Williamsburg and to the world. It would be very easy to think, you know, I've got friends here in the church who have real evangelistic gifts. They're great at talking to people, but not me. Okay, we've we've all got different gifts. But it is not the ministry of a select few. As a church, together, we are called to be a witness and a light. And how are we going to talk to an unbelieving world about the forgiveness that Jesus brings and the way in which that now unites us to other people and gives us the ability to forgive and to love and to be together, to work together. How are we going to point to that without the real relationships of this church that make that manifest to the world? We are in this mission together. May we together bring the gospel to every nook and cranny of Williamsburg and of Newport News in Yorktown and of our world application here pray for this that we would be that kind of church that we would have those kind of connections and that we as a church together would treasure the gospel and that we as a church together would share and show that treasure to a world around us let's pray father we do thank you That your great plan in the world is so much bigger than we are as individuals. We thank you that you have saved us to be in right relationship with you. But at the same time, that comes right relationship with your family, your people. You have come to save an international family of believers that stretches through time and across the whole world. People from every tongue and tribe and nation now brought into one family, the church. And here, for us here in Williamsburg and here at this church, we are one manifestation of that. This local church, you love us. May we love it and love your purposes. And may together we be faithful to step into the mission of God that you call us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.